Hey, these are great days for us as a church, and we've been leaning in a direction of asking God, what does the future look like for us? And last Sunday, we shared with you uh, that we've embraced as a church family uh, a new vision statement, and we call it the why statement. And it's something that we prayed into for a long time, and we've landed on these words that we're really all about this, releasing the kingdom of heaven on earth. That's why we're here. And uh, we are just now in the, in the process of just uh, believing God for impossible things and uh, aligning ourselves to this mission and this, this picture that God has for our future. And I want to encourage you to be a part of it. Try to imagine the kingdom of God expanding and advancing in our city, where captives are set free, uh, where healings really do happen, uh, where the lost are found, where destinies are changed. That's what it's all about, releasing the kingdom of heaven and earth. We are so excited about that. And on your way out this morning, um, our hosts are going to give you a card uh, that tells that story and take it home with you and be praying into this so we can be all connected together uh, in, in the area of releasing the kingdom of heaven on earth. And speaking about that, uh, this weekend is Holy Spirit Encounter Weekend. Yeah, so... We've been at it Friday, Saturday, and we got one more session this afternoon, and uh, we have friends and guests that are here. I see some of them. Uh, they're, they're in town. They've come from all places uh, all over Alberta, and we're so delighted that you're with us this morning, and we trust that God's just going to do more phenomenal things. When I went home last night at about 11 o'clock, I lost count of how many times I heard the word that people were healed, and so we'll celebrate all that with you guys next Sunday, uh, but people are being radically touched by God right here in this building. It's awesome. Yeah. And hey, uh, it's been a long time since we had Doug Balzer as our guest speaker, and we love Doug Balzer when he's in the house, right? Yeah. We love it. And uh, Doug and Terry are a very important part of our church family. This is their home church, and they, with their two sons, are just so integral to our lives. He's a leader in our family of churches in the area of renewal and uh, church planting and leader development, and we love this guy. So let's welcome Doug as he comes up here to bring the word this morning. Yeah. Well, good morning, church family. The 9 a.m. beat you on that one. I got to say, usually the 11 a.m. is uh, the one where I get most of the good mornings. But, you know, you're a really responsive church. I was saying to the 9 a.m. group that sometimes when I stand in different churches and say good morning, it's just like, hello, 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 is anybody out there? But, But I know that's never going to happen at Airdrie Alliance Church. And as Sandy said, this is our church home, and we love being a part of what God's doing here. If you have a Bible, would you turn to John chapter 13? John chapter 13. You know, the first uh, phrase in this text that I'm going to read, it says it was just before the Passover feast. And how many of you know that the Jewish Passover is what we celebrate as Easter? It's really one and the same, although we celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ Uh, died and rose from the dead. And we're heading into that season, aren't we? We're a month away from Easter. We're we're actually in the Lenten season, Lent. You know, the the whole idea of Lent is pretty common in the more mainline uh, churches where people would choose to give up something during the season of Lent to better identify with Jesus Christ who gave himself up for us. You guys giving anything up for Lent this year? I was going to give up Doritos, but then, but then I realized God would never ask that of anyone. So, uh, so I'm giving up moderation for Lent this year instead. So, some of you didn't get that, but you will. You will. 
Anyways, those are the only Lent jokes I've got. But, but it is, uh, in all seriousness, it is, it is in this season approaching Easter, which is a high point in the Christian calendar when we um, come around the centrality of Christ once again. And so, again, if you have your Bible, let's be in John chapter 13. And I'm going to read a big chunk of Scripture. I'm going to read a big chunk from verse 1 through 17. Here we go. It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And they came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. The whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew he was, who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You know, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a master greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thus far, the word of the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> and Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, we invite you that by your spirit, with your written word and the indwelling spirit, that you shine light into places that you want to shine your light onto. That you would wash those places that you know need washing. And that you would form in the hearts of we, your daughters and sons. Hearts that not only desire to release the kingdom of heaven on earth, but are equipped in the same way that you were equipped to release the kingdom of heaven on earth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen talking today about powerful humility. Here we have a picture of Jesus Christ in very nature God. He is God. And when he spoke these words, he was, he was operating as son and, and as God. He was on the earth, fully God, fully human. And, and uh, he chooses to be so humble to wash the dirty parts of his followers' lives. Have you ever... Have you ever thought of it in those kinds of terms? That it's actually in the heart of your Father in heaven to cleanse, to wash, to redeem 
the filthiest places of you and of me. Staggering, isn't it? That he would be so humble to do that. To take such a lowly position. And yet so powerful to actually do something about it. Well, let's put the... Let's put this in context of what's going on in in this story. The pressure is building for Jesus. He knew that the hour had come. The word says it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come to leave this world and go to the Father. And that journey, he understood, that journey was going to entail being betrayed by one, being deserted by the rest, by being arrested on false charges going through a kangaroo court of a trial, being tortured in a manner and crucified in a manner that even today people would say are among the most cruel ways to be tortured and killed. Jesus knew this was before him. This was in the hours, not days, the hours in front of him. And it was in that place with the pressure building that Jesus, knowing that his father had put all things under him, knowing that he had come from God and was returning to God, in parenthesis now, there's something of his identity that we understand there, don't we? He understood what he was about. He understood who he was. But it's in the context of that kind of pressure building, in the face, in a room of people who were about to desert him, that he took off his outer garment and he wrapped a towel around his waist. He poured water into a basin and went from one of his disciples to another, to another, cleaning their feet, taking such a lowly position, carefully drying it. It says right there in verse 2 that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Other translations say that Jesus demonstrated the full extent of his love. Now, that is just such a marked difference compared to how Balzer reacts when the pressure's on. How how do you respond when the pressure is on, when it's against you, when you are being accused, when you are being challenged, when you're um, standing face-to-face or, you know, eye-to-eye or across Facebook or whatever it is with people who oppose you or people who have a low view of you? Or people that you know have stabbed you in the back or are about to. Do you respond with, I want to show them the full extent of my love. You know, I want to show them the full extent of something. <laughs> but it's not the full extent of my love. But this is what Jesus does, friends. And we want to look at this here today. And I want to look even more carefully at chapter 3. Because I think chapter 3 gives us a strong clue as to how Jesus, the God-man, operating in his humanity while he is still God, but he's operating in his humanity, had the capacity to be humble and yet powerful. Had the capacity to, in the face of great pressure and great betrayal and desertion, love deeply. And we know this passage ends with, you know, you ought to now wash one another's feet. And you will be blessed if you do those things. And it seems like an impossibility. And just, you know, piggybacking off of what Sandy was saying here, the why we exist to release the kingdom of heaven on earth, it's, it's really an impossibility to release the kingdom of heaven on earth unless we understand what it means to receive the kingdom in our own lives. And Jesus, in, in verse 3, 
We see his identity. And so we're going to unpack that. When, um, when the, the correct identity is exposed, we see Jesus here, it results in love. When we are operating out of a false identity, it tends to be very different realities, does it not? Here are some examples that I, I pulled from, from actually Sandy and Nick because they do all these kinds of things when, they're, when their identity isn't secure. Yeah, you... You can hear the sarcasm. How do I know this happens? Well, it's my life. When my soul feels like it's in prison, I get angry. How about you? Or I pout. I withdraw. I blame and get defensive. I might try to overcompensate by making myself look better in other areas. I can get depressed, self-centered, brag. I can become easily offended, feel threatened, hypersensitive, a need to be right. Does any of that work for you? Am I the only one? Or Sandy, Nick, and I, the only ones in the room, you know? No, we all have our, we all have our thing, don't we? And the tape starts playing in my mind. Even a couple months ago, I was called into a meeting with some leaders, and I didn't realize it heading in, but it quickly became an ambush, an ambush on, on Balzer. It was just a big misunderstanding, but for 10 minutes I was being accused of this and accused of that. And, and it was not the full extent of the Father's love that was, that was uh, being played on the tape in my mind. There were other things. Jesus, would you lead us to the place where it's your tape that gets played in our minds when the pressure is rising? And then maybe we can actually be people who authentically do the things that Jesus did. Releasing the kingdom, washing the feet of one another taking the posture of humility that in and of itself is powerful. So again, the context of this is the Last Supper. And you've seen the, the paintings of, is it Da Vinci who did the Last Supper? You know, the painting, there's Jesus in the middle and his six and six, 12 disciples, and they're all, they're all facing in the same direction. Like that, that just wouldn't happen. One of them would have said, this is dumb. How about six of you go and sit on the other side? So it's not an accurate depiction. A more accurate depiction is probably, does probably not even involve chairs. In fact, if you look at 23 in chapter uh, 13 of John, you can see there's a reference to them reclining. So maybe a better picture would be, imagine a bunch of young adults, which these were, in a living room with a low coffee table, and they're playing a game. How would they sit around there? You know, some of them are cross-legged, and some of them are kind of leaning on one elbow, and their feet are sort of splayed in all kinds of different directions. That's likely what's going on here, rather than having chairs. And in this culture, if you've ever been to, I mean, you know, a bit of a show of hands, how many of you have ever been to the developing world wearing sandals, but you were not on pavement? Yeah, and what, are, what do your feet look like at the end of the day? They're dark brown or they're black. You know, they're, um, they're just so soiled that whatever your originating skin color is, they are now different. They look like the dirt, whatever color the dirt might have been in that area. And in this culture, in ancient Judaism, it would have been the servant, often the slave, who would be the one who would quietly enter the room and no one would even acknowledge the person. And that person would come along and undo their sandals while they were just visiting and you know, wash their feet. No one would even pay attention to that person. It was an unimportant person, someone to be ignored, because who wants to acknowledge that I'm dirty and I need to be cleaned? And no one picks up that role in this private dinner. And so Jesus chooses to. 
And you, do you see it's an image? Whenever Jesus does something in his, um, kind of in his redemptive work, there are echoes of it ahead of time. And this is an echo of the cross where Jesus takes the most humble posture imaginable in that situation and at the cross and goes and washes. And so we who are followers of Christ, we have been washed by the blood of Jesus. And Jesus is depicting his work on the cross here at the Last Supper. Let me say it again. Your Father in heaven desires to wash your broken places your dirty places. He knows about them. In fact, you know those yet-to-be-redeemed places in your life where you think, man, I'm, not that real, I'm really not that great. You know those places? I got news for you. You're far worse than you think. You are. You and I and Sandy and Nick, all of us, we're actually far worse than maybe we'll ever know. And Jesus is not threatened by that. And he actually wants to take off a towel, take off his outer garments, put on a towel, and serve you. What's remarkable about this is that Jesus is not humble in his position. Can I remind you of his position of who he really is in all eternity? In John 1, same book, beginning of the book. In the beginning was the Word. The Word here is Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not understood it. We know theologically that if you go to Genesis 1, and you read the creation narrative of God saying, let there be light, let there be land, let there be animals. That's actually Jesus, the Word, speaking in his authority, creating everything out of nothing. That's fairly powerful. And it is that same God who takes the lowest form of a servant because he wants to serve you. Doesn't that seem ridiculous? Because he wants to show you the full extent of his love in your broken places, in your yet-to-be-redeemed places. This is powerful humility. Jesus lived and served out of his identity that he received from his Father, and so must you. If we're going to have any hope of being people who do these things, and you will be blessed we must follow in his footsteps. He is our example in every possible way. So I want to just bring the microscope up, the magnifying glass up to verse 3. Turn there if you have it. Here it is. I think this is the, the tell-all verse that gives us a glimpse as to why Jesus was able to do all that he was able to do. Jesus, he knew three things. One, that the Father had put all things under his power. Two, that he had come from God. And three, that he was returning to God. Jesus understood those things. He knew who he was. He knew who he was. Our friend Martin Sanders uses a bit of a construct saying that, that every, every person, every, every Christ follower needs three things. They need validation, they need affirmation, and they need consecration. I want to talk about those. I'm going to use that little construct to provide a framework to understanding Jesus' view of himself through the eyes of his Father 
and then to understand how we are invited into that same understanding of ourselves. But when those three things are not formed, our validation kind of has to do with our past, our affirmation more about our present, and our consecration more about our future. It leaves us as people with our souls in a prison, prison of a false identity, prison of not understanding well who we are and what we're all about and who is with us along in the journey. So let's look at validation first of all. Validation of the past. Well, Jesus knew that he had come from God. He knew where he came from. He knew his origin was awesome. He originated from God as the man Jesus walking in full humanity and full divinity. If you think back to Luke chapter 3, referring to the baptism of Jesus, when heaven is opened, as it were, and the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus as he's being baptized by John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit descends on him in the bodily form of a dove, and a voice is heard from heaven that says three things. This is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And in that we do see the you are my son It's the validation of where Jesus has come from. Do you see the connection here? He knew where he came from. Do you know where you've come from? Some of us have confused pasts. I know mine was confused. It's getting clear all the time. I was given up for adoption at birth. It's very easy to argue that I was an illegitimate child. There's a term for that, isn't there? You know, accidental. You don't even have to be an adoptee to appreciate that. Some of us feel like our lives have been accidents. We weren't wanted. Or maybe it doesn't have to do with your origin. Maybe it has to do with decisions you've made in the past, mistakes you've made, regrets that you have, labels that you have agreed with over your life that do not come from the mind of God. And as a result, we, those of us who feel like we don't experience the validation of God, we end up medicating a lot of pain. Could be through, you know, prescription medications. Could be through all, whatever medication of choice. Whether it's substance abuse or porn or spending or um, achievement and drivenness. Whatever, right? Are you, are you tracking with me? You doing the math on this? Okay. Ask the Holy Spirit right now, are there any lies about my past that I am believing? Ask him right now. He can talk to you. Jesus wants to heal those places, friends. It's where he wants to go. We so often want to just follow him into the feel-good experience. And he's everywhere. I'm not saying he's not there. But his deep stuff, his deep stuff goes here. He doesn't want to just treat your symptoms. He wants deep transformation. Even to validate your past. What's the truth? That you were conceived in God's mind before birth. My life was not an accident. I'm telling you right now, it's God's idea. My life wasn't an accident. I come from him. He thought of me before I was conceived. And you too. And he affirms who I am because I'm his son. I was formed in the womb. He watched over me. I've been set apart as you have been for his kingdom purposes. This is the truth. Some of you need to invite Jesus to validate your past. Maybe you've never done that. You can do it now. You can just blank me out for the next 10 seconds. Say, Jesus, I don't know if I've ever done that. 
I'm inviting you now to validate my past. I don't know what that means, don't know what it looks like, but I'm saying come on in and do that work. And for some of you, it'll be a journey that will take place in a moment or it might take place in five years, but he will do it if you give him the, the access to do so. That's validation. Let's move on to affirmation. Affirmation has more to do with the present than the past. And we see this in verse 3 here in John chapter 13, where Jesus knew of the three things. He knew that the Father had put all things under his power. So in the present, he's facing 12 guys. One will betray him, the others will desert him. He knew as he's facing this hour that God was sovereign. That God was sovereign. And that God was with him. Luke 3, the baptism of Jesus. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. It's in the present. This, the idea of godly affirmation is the knowledge that as I take every step, he is with me. He is not distant. And he has declared me worthy of his presence, his affection, his affirmation. For those of us who um, maybe have felt there's been a wound in our validation or affirmation, it's as if, and this, boy, this is my experience for 42 years of my life, it's as if um, words of affirmation that come into your soul, it just falls right through. It doesn't stick. And so no amount of affirmation. I used to do all kinds of things, trying to gain the affirmation of people. And I would get it. I would get copious amounts of affirmation and none of it made any difference. None of it was enough. Enough. And some of you don't understand that. God bless you. Maybe this isn't your thing. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And your soul needs to be healed right there. So that your soul can be filled with the presence of God and out of the overflow, you may um, demonstrate to people the full extent of the Father's love. Your brokenness does not threaten Jesus. Your stuff, and again, your stuff is far worse than you think it is. And he knows it. It does not throw him off. He sees it and he still says to you, if you know him, you are my son, you are my daughter. I'm already pleased with you because I see my son Jesus imprinted upon your soul. He's not thrown off by your brokenness. The bigger question is, are you giving him access to your real brokenness. Affirmation of the present. What's the truth? The truth is, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. doesn't matter what you do tomorrow. You know, whatever besetting sin you struggle with, if tomorrow night you fall into that again, you are still a child of God. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. And the love of God is what has compelled him to offer you adoption, sonship, daughtership. The idea of living not only in the validation of God, but in the affirmation of God is knowing that he is present with me every moment of every day. And we actually have access to him at every moment of every day pretty familiar passage here in Hebrews chapter 4, but I'd like to read it. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let me just boil that down to what stands out to me. In your place of weakness, it's a word in in the text, when you need, when you have a need, when you need help, God is present. You have access to him. This is who you are. This is who you are. But it's a hard one to learn. It was only, I mean, I preach this stuff now, and it was only about uh, nine days ago. Now, some of you know I, I build acoustic guitars and sometimes repair guitars. And a guitar I built for a person, uh, the guy let, let something happen to it, and it really got damaged in a big way. So he brought it back, and I'm trying to fix this thing. And I'm just so frustrated with, how am I going to fix this? And when you're fixing guitars, you can't, like, try things over and over. It's very, very committed, the process. And I was so frustrated last Friday night, a week and a half ago, I said to Terry, I'm just done with this. I just don't even want to see another guitar as long as I live. Now, some of you who know Terry might know what she suggested I do. She said, why don't you just ask Jesus? He might be able to tell you. I'm going to tell you what my initial response was. Um, I couldn't put my finger on it, but here's what was going on in Balzer's mind. I don't feel worthy to ask Jesus about such a mundane thing. Oh, yeah, I feel worthy to say, oh, Lord, as I get up to preach, would you, you know, anoint me so that I can proclaim you? I mean, that just sounds so righteous, you know, but, but about the mundane? So I didn't ask him, and I was grumpy all evening, and I slept poorly. Why? Because I felt unworthy. There's an affirmation thing going on there. So 5.30, Saturday morning, eight days ago, I woke up, still stewing over this thing. And I said, okay, Jesus, I give up. I'm going to ask you. But you got, you got to make your voice really clear because on this one, I just have such doubt that you would even care about this. I mean, it's crazy. I teach this all the time, and here I am. And so I said, can you just make it really loud and clear to me? How, like, how, do I, how, am, I, how am I going to fix this thing? So, so, okay, I'm listening. Go now. Boom, boom, boom. I heard three steps of what to do. The first one, it wouldn't have been, I didn't think it would be in my, in my own mind because I didn't want to do that step. A lot of work. The next one didn't make sense until I thought about it later on. But anyways, three, three things just came. Boom, 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 right away into my mind. And I thought, well, that's interesting. How do I know that's you, Jesus? Can you, um, can you give me a Bible verse? Because there's many verses on how to fix guitars in Scripture, as you well know. Can you give me a Bible verse so that I know it's you speaking? Romans 9.1 came to mind. You know what Romans 9.1 says? I don't either. No one knows what Romans 9.1 says. It's not one of those, you know, John 3.16. Boom, there it is. Romans, Romans 9.1 so I, you know, turn the light on, Terry is still sleeping, I open up my Bible, and I can quote it for you. You know what Romans 9.1 says? When I'm asking Jesus, is this you? I quote, Romans 9.1, I am not lying, I speak the truth. <laughs> Look it up. I started laughing out loud. And the, and the guitar repair went beautifully. It was easy. Um... Do you know that your, your Lord is present with you? Do you live with that affirmation in your soul? 
If you didn't, you've got to ask Jesus to lead you there. We can ask him. He empathizes, doesn't say with our strengths, he empathizes with what? Our weakness. So that we may find help in our time of need. This is the access that we have. Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his, under his power. He was under the sovereign love of his Father. So ask him, where does my identity need to be affirmed? I'm listening. So we've talked about validation. We're talking about affirmation. We're going to talk about consecration. Consecration, you know, it's just kind of a fancy term of, um, related to the future. Uh, consecration definition is having a sacred purpose. And Jesus had a sacred pur- purpose. In verse 3 of John 13, Jesus knew of those other two, two things. He also knew that he was returning to God. He knew he had a destination. There wasn't, when he looked at the future, there wasn't a big question mark. Oh, I wonder how things are going to turn out. He already knew that he had a destiny. Not in the new age sense. Let's just reclaim some of these. He had a destination that was predetermined from the mind of God. Luke 3 in his baptism, Luke 3, 21. This is my son, what? Whom I love. The idea of being held in your father's love dispels fear of the future. Because you know his love goes with you. And Jesus says, in terms of us being, wanting to be a part of him, unless I wash you, verse 8, you can have no part in me. He, he says it in a negative um, form in the sentence. If you take that same sentence and apply it in a positive form, what it does mean is, if he washes you, you are part of him. And at the cross of Christ, if you have bent your knee in submission to your Lord and invited Jesus through his work to become the curse, the object of your sin, you then are washed, and as a result, you are a part of him. You are consecrated. Are you following? So for every son and daughter of the king in this room, you are consecrated. Your life has a sacred purpose. There's no question mark in, terms, in the mind of God about where he's taking you. No question mark. But if we don't have that, our life becomes more about fear. Fear of the unknown. But if you're actually living in your true identity, you don't have to know stuff because the person who carries you into your future, he knows lots. He knows everything. We don't have to fear difficulty because there is no difficulty that can approach your future life that is larger than the power of God. You don't have to fear financial ruin because whatever form, uh, from whatever source you get your income these days, that's not your ultimate source of your income. Your Father in heaven is your ultimate source of your income. You don't have to fear that. You don't have to fear being exposed, that your, you know, your, your junk, your shame, whatever would be exposed, because when God shines light on our stuff, he never brings us to shame. He only brings us to freedom. We don't need to fear that. We don't even need to fear failure because greater is he who is in you than he that is of the world. And you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. So this idea of fear for the future is something of a fallacy because there is no fear in love. 1 John 4.18 But perfect love dries out fear because fear has to do with punishment and the one who fears is not made perfect in love. If you have fear in your life today, Jesus wants to make you perfect through your knowledge of the reality that he loves you and that he carries you 
in his hand, even as Jesus had that same kind of posture. This is what it means to be consecrated. Fear not is the number one command in Scripture. There's no other command that is issued even remotely close to the command of fear not. Why? Because it's, I believe it's because it's rooted in who God is. To, to say, I am with you, Father, I am your child, and to fear is to, have, to make a false declaration about who God is. We of all people have no reason to fear because of who he is. But if we don't have this validation work in our hearts or this work of affirmation from the Father, an understanding of the reality of how our lives are consecrated to him, we end up living in an imprisoned soul. An imprisoned soul. It's kind of a pretend soul. You see it here in verse 7 and 8 of 1 John 13 when Jesus goes to wash Peter's feet and he says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And you can see him resisting the ministry of Jesus. Even as people resist the cross, we who are on the other side of the cross, we can have a tendency to resist the ministry of Jesus when he wants to go to the broken places, to the dirty places. And again, his brokenness doesn't, your brokenness doesn't threaten him. But what pops up is shame unworthiness, all these identity things. Fear of being authentically known. Are you authentically known by anybody? It's a pretty lonely place to not be known by anybody, but pretend that you're being known. It's one of the loneliest places in the world. It's prison of the soul. And when the soul is in prison, it tends to create a false self, a false projection of who I am. We see that with Peter here, where is it in verse, um, verse 8? Well, then don't just wash my feet, but my hands and my head. And we see this vacillation in the life of Peter, going from not worthy to, oh, give me it all then. He lacks this kind of humility just to receive. And if you have a f- sense of a false self, it's either this, this projection of larger than life. You know people who are sort of larger than life? They're compensating from a soul that's in prison, or smaller than, can work in the opposite way as well. They actually view themselves more small, uh, smaller than their Heavenly Father would. All in an attempt to quiet the shaming voices, voices of inadequacy, voices of fear. And we try to gain esteem through accomplishment, achievement, um, outward appearance, you know, whatever it might be. And it's this kind of thing that Jesus says, I want to wash you and make you clean so that you can be people who look like I do and do the works that I do. So, verse 8, Jesus says, unless I wash you, you can have no part in me. There's a limit to what we can do on our own in our formation. How many of you have ever heard of uh, Teresa of Avila? She was a saint from the Middle Ages. Uh, Six weeks ago, Terry and I were in Spain uh, serving some of our international workers and on, a, on one of our free days, we went to the town of Avila, where Teresa of Avila, ironically enough, that's her last name, and, uh, she was from this town. And she talks about how Christ is formed in people. And she uses sort of a metaphor of inner castles or, or inner, inner pathways, that there are seven pathways to having Christ being formed fully. She talks about how the first three are active pathways, where we have to actually do things. 
And they're good things, and they're the right things. You know, read our Bible, engage in spiritual disciplines, join a faith community. All these things where we are actively pursuing him. But we get to a point where we face our broken stuff, and you can't actively pursue yourself out of those things. The last four are passive pathways. And they're letting Jesus sit behind the driver's seat and giving him access to our broken places when Jesus says, unless you let me wash you, you can have no part in me. And so today, I'm just wondering, maybe there's a few people in this room whose souls feel like they're in prison. And maybe you're just about done with projecting the false self. It's a very fatiguing journey. Maybe that's not for every, all of you, but for some of you, you know what I mean. It's so fatiguing. And the invitation is to let him have access to those. And we can give him access by just confessing what they are. This is true of me. By inviting him into those places. By saying, Jesus, shine your light on those dark places. And you, you, you may wonder, is that it? In a sense, yeah. And trust him to take you on a journey where he will fortify your soul. He'll redeem your past so you know you're valid, you're legit. You're not unworthy. To allow him to affirm you, your true identity, that he is with you. He'll never leave you. To give you a soul-level understanding of how you are consecrated. You're set apart. It's got a destination for you. Let's get on with it. It does have to do with releasing the kingdom of heaven on earth. But it's got to come from the right place so that it's his jet fuel and not our false jet fuel. And it's then we really serve out of the overflow. You know, Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We see in the life of Jesus in John 13, someone who is overflowing with the presence of his Father, the love of his Father. This word overflow in, in the Greek is parasuo. It's overflow. It's abounding. It's you can't help it. It's not self-initiative. It's overflowing because rivers of life are flowing into you and through you. And it's my belief, my understanding of John 13, that when we're following in his footsteps and embracing the identity that he has purchased for us on the cross, then the following statement seems attainable because it's his work in us. When Jesus says, and very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And now if you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Freely we have received, freely we give. Let's pray. So Jesus, in ways that we don't even fully understand, we fully receive from you. And we just give you access to places in our soul where there's still darkness. And as crazy as it seems to our mortal minds, Jesus, we say, I receive your ministry, Lord. Wash me even more deeply. And for anyone in the room who's never invited Jesus to live in them, where he offers that you can become a son of the king, a daughter of the king, 
through a new birth that he does in your heart. Even right now, you can just say, Jesus, you come wash me. Come wash me. Come and enter in and create new life in me. I need you to be my Lord. And we thank you, Jesus, that this ministry of yours that we so desire you to do, you actually desire to do more than we do. So we thank you, we receive you. In Jesus' name.